Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and, or excuse me, chapter 2, as we come back to this rich, rich book, which I hope that you are beginning to grasp some of its riches. There's no doubt that if we were to announce next week, we had a guest speaker, and it was none other than the Apostle Paul, you would all show up in mighty force at the opportunity to hear directly from the man directly from his lips, and, and to have some sense of, of what he's like in person. Well, First Thessalonians is a book that gives us, as near as we can through the written word, some idea of what that was like. As Paul writes one of the most personal and, um, and engaging letters that he wrote anywhere, with much in this about his own personal life. I was thinking about it this week as I was studying, uh, especially in light of what is broadly talked about today, we might say the credibility problem. The issue that so many people are having trying to verify and trying to, to validate the news that they're hearing, the fake news or whatever you want to call it, all the little buzzwords that are out there, people are are recognizing that we have this virtually unlimited access to voices, to information, and it has come with a serious crisis in credibility. Because you have to ask yourself at some point, how do you know whether or not what I'm being told is coming from a trustworthy source? How do I know whether or not this person has the credentials to say what they're saying or, or to be able to speak to the issues that they're speaking to? How do I know what's true? We're bombarded with all these increasingly slick presentations and visual formats and people are consuming most of their information over a screen. Whether it's a large screen, a small screen, whatever it is. That's how they're being instructed. That's how they're being taught. That's what's shaping everything that goes into their minds. And they're swept up with all of these crafty uh, tricks on their emotions and, and attempts to lock in their loyalties because of the presentation of whatever the material is. And it has been an especially rich boon for Satan who utilizes these things to, sw- to sway people, to draw people in, propagating all kinds of misleading spiritual messages and spiritual models. It's a tragedy. People get drawn into all of this seemingly with no idea how to tell the true from the false. Well, the Thessalonians had a a similar kind of a challenge, not in a digital age, but in their own age, they were in the middle of the superhighway. They were at the kind of a crossroads of the world which brought along every idea from every corner of the world. They were the place where there was such an exchange or such a bombardment of so many different voices. And along the road, the Via Ignatia, which was the main highway going from, uh, from Asia over to Rome, You pass through Thessalonica almost necessarily. And so they had a constant stream of not only philosophers, but prophets and sages and gurus from all over peddling their ideas on all the locals. And so when Paul comes through and he preaches the gospel, and then when he's eventually run out of town, the Jews 
launch a campaign against him, a concerted effort to smear his name and to undermine his credibility. They were claiming that he was just another one of these hucksters who had come into town and on the basis of so many ill motives, on the basis of so many hidden agendas and duplicity in his own life and character, that he had just peddled something on them that they shouldn't be listening to. You may remember when Paul was in Thessalonica, his opponents followed these kinds of schemes. Acts 17 tells the story. It says in verse 5, the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. They did their best to stoke a sort of mob violence uh, with the idea that this was all stirred up by the Apostle Paul, which it wasn't. And then they, they drug some of the Christians, we're told in verse 7, before the authorities, saying that all of these men are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. So they're taking Paul's words, no doubt his gospel, and distorting that and twisting that and making it sound like a message that Paul himself would never have said. In fact, Paul steadily uh, uh, held to the necessity of, of submitting to Caesar and submitting to the government. But they did all of these things, stirring up all of these rumors about the Apostle Paul. And then when they finally chased him out of town, when they heard he went down to Berea, they even followed him down there and once again did the same thing, stirred up crowds, uh, caused rumors, and undermined Paul's credibility. All of this trying to discredit him. They didn't necessarily want to take him on in a dialogue talking about the ideas and the truths that he was preaching, they simply wanted to do all they could in a public way to smear his name. And once they succeeded in running out of town, they didn't let up. They apparently turned their attention to the remaining church and tried to shake their confidence in Paul's leadership. No doubt mocking him for running away. Probably suggesting all this just proves the impurity of his motives. And I'm sure they challenged his commitment. They probably proposed that Paul swept in and swept out of town so quickly. He was a deceiver just trying to lead you for whatever personal gain he could get out of it. Perhaps all about money or all about personal uh, uh, fame or probably personal comfort, whatever he could. And then when the trouble came, he just abandoned all of you. And they would say all of these things to the Thessalonian church. And I can just imagine that some of them listened to it. And it sounded plausible. It sounded like, well, that, that kind of explains a, a little bit, maybe, of what we saw or what we heard. I mean, I, kind of, I can kind of see that. There appeared to be some sort of correlation to the way things unfolded and what these people were saying about Paul. Well, all of this is why he felt compelled to write this letter. He knew this was going on. It's why he sent Timothy back as he references over in chapter 3. He knew all of this was going on. And this is his focus as we... Come to chapter 2 from verse 1 all the way down through verse 16 as Paul really spends extensive amount of time defending his life 
and his ministry while he was in Thessalonica. And then beginning in verse 17, going all the way to the end of chapter 3, he takes pains to explain his heart and why he has chosen not to come back to Thessalonica, but eventually even expressing his determination to do so as soon as it is possible. Let me just, I can't read all of it, but let me just read for you the first 12 verses of this second chapter so you can have a sense of some of the tone of what Paul's saying. He says in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Your witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. These two chapters have a, a, a tremendous personal appeal. And all of it comes against a backdrop where Paul feels the necessity to write all these things. It's easy to understand why he writes them. When you, when you read what happened in Acts 17 and you see the way that people were attempting to smear Paul's name even then. And then you read all of this and you understand what they were doing when he left and you go on down to chapter 3 and you hear Paul's heart about why he had to send Timothy back there just to find out if they still had some affection for him. He says even down to chapter 3 verse 6, now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Those are the words that Paul wanted to hear. But he was fearful because there were people who were trying to discredit his ministry. And so what he does here in chapter 2 is he outlines his own life. He, do, he just reminds them of how he was when he was with them. He just, just brings all of that stuff back to memory. He, he, he wants to help them to evaluate him, not based on the rumors that they're hearing and all the chatter that's going on, but he wants to help them evaluate him the right kind of a way, which is according to what they know about his life. 
And if you want to summarize it, that's really what it all comes down to. It comes down to your life. Paul says a lot here, but it all has to do with the quality of the way that he lived his life and, and the way the other missionaries lived their lives in front of him. Because Paul understood this is where leadership begins. It begins with example. It begins with model. He understood what Christ said, that whenever someone is fully trained, they will be like their teacher. And so you got to have a life example, which doesn't make sense to me. Those people who, who uh, they get all of their uh, spiritual instruction off of a video screen or off of a, a device or a, a computer or whatever it might be. It doesn't make any sense to me when you understand the vitality or the essential nature of the, of the connection between spiritual leadership and example, life. Paul wants to remind them that before they ever listened to his words, they were able to see his message in the way that he lived. And so he calls them to remembrance. He reminds them of what they know, reminds them of what they saw. In fact, you'll look even back in chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And now here in chapter 2, verse 1, you know, brothers, and in verse 2, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated, as you know. And then in verse 5, we never came to you with flattery, as you know. And then in verse 9, you remember, brothers, verse 10, you are witnesses, or verse 11, you know these things. So this whole thing is just an appeal to their first-hand knowledge of his life. This was the foundation of his ministry. It wasn't his oratory skill. It wasn't the grand extensiveness of his knowledge. It wasn't degrees. It wasn't any of that stuff. It wasn't his outward success. It was their knowledge of his life. Their knowledge of his conduct. He was so much more than just a Sunday morning lecturer. He was intimately involved with them. He was not aloof. His life was open. It was accessible. It was visible. And as they spent time with him, he reminds them of what they saw. Genuine, authentic Christian life. What they saw confirmed the sincerity of his message. What they saw was a life of a man who had been transformed by the gospel. What they saw was a devotion that was real, a courage that was lasting, an example that was inspiring, a love that was welcoming, and an instruction that was practical. Now, with this kind of smear campaign going on in the background, Paul is forced into this. He's forced to defend his ministry by pointing to his life. Not just his doctrine. In fact, he says very little about his doctrine here. He points to his life. And Paul's ministry, like any truly effective ministry, was reinforced and confirmed by that kind of a life. He lived a life that was clear and evident to his flock and They knew him not just as a teacher, but as much as anything as a shepherd. Because the effective ministry of any shepherd is built on this kind of life. 
the defense he mounts here not only lets us see the kind of man that the Apostle Paul was, but it also helps us to evaluate any shepherd, any spiritual leader, any pastor. He gives us a clear reflection, not only his own life, but his record here, a clear reflection of the kind of shepherd whose life validates his ministry. The kind of shepherd whose life validates his ministry. And we're going to look at this over the next couple of weeks and and take note of a number of qualities that the Apostle Paul talks about here that help us define the, the life or define the qualities of a genuine shepherd. We won't get through them all today, but we're going to make some headway to kind of build a full picture of the kind of life that validates the teaching of a genuine shepherd. Seven qualities that reflect this life. The first one comes to us in the first couple of verses, and it's simply this. It is courage in the face of opposition. Courage in the face of opposition. Paul begins in verse 1 with this appeal to their knowledge and their memories. You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. They had first-hand knowledge of this coming. And remember, we talked about this in chapter 1. When he talks about coming, he says, even in verse 9, he talks about his, uh, the, their reception of him. He's not talking about their initial arrival, the first night they landed there. He's not simply referring to that. He's talking about what we might say was their whole approach. Their whole approach to the ministry. The way they conducted themselves. And he says it wasn't in vain. It wasn't in emptiness. You know our approach. It didn't lack earnestness. It didn't come to you as empty. It wasn't hollow. But it was, and he contrasts in verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. Once again, you know these things. I'm appealing to what you know. He says, although that was the case, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So he reminds them that his preaching came in the midst of this conflict. When he first arrived at Thessalonica, he had been beaten, he had been shamefully treated, We're told the story over in Acts 16, he was innocently going out to a place of prayer in Philippi when he encounters a young slave girl who is possessed by a demon. And he turns around and casts the demon out and immediately the owners of the slave girl get angry and because they had had abused her and used her for financial gain as a fortune teller, they get angry. And they, they drag Paul, they seize him and Silas and drag them into the marketplace before the rulers. And we read in Acts 16.20, when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Well, of course, all of that's a lie. They're just misrepresenting everything that Paul's saying. They're they're They're... they're Creating these rumors and and trying to smear his name. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking him and the magistrates tore the garments off of them. And gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them safely. 
Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, the reason Paul brings all of this up is because it was fresh on his mind whenever he got to Thessalonica. I mean, you don't go through something like that without it being seared into your memory. He gets there and he was still throbbing from the rods on his back. And even, I'm sure, in his heart and mind, the insult and the demeaning nature of their torture. They were mistreated, they were mocked, stripped publicly of their clothing, strapped up and beaten in front of everyone because of false accusations, thrown into prison, fastening their feet in stocks, without trial, without opportunity to defend themselves, in spite of their rights as Roman citizens. You don't easily forget those kinds of things when you're mistreated like this. And your natural instinct would normally be to retreat from the danger, to fly away into some obscure corner where you couldn't be treated like that again, where you're not so much in the spotlight or where you're not so much under threat or where people maybe haven't become privy to these kinds of things. And you try your best not to offend anyone so that you're never treated like that again. That's the human response. That's the fleshly response. But Paul reminds them that in spite of that treatment in their background, they did not shrink back from boldly proclaiming the truth to the Thessalonians. They said to them, As difficult as it was, they said to them exactly what they needed to hear. And it stirred up opposition. We're told in Acts 17 that Paul came to town and he reasoned with the Jews three weeks in the synagogue and everything seemed to go well. But then on the third week, there was a revolt. As people began to be persuaded, the Jews became jealous. That's what it says. They were jealous. Jealous of what? Jealous, no doubt, that they were losing their prestige. They were losing their following. They were losing their power. They were losing their control. And so out of a motive of jealousy, they went around and began to stir up a a campaign against Paul so that he could tell the Thessalonians from that point forward and for the next few months when he was in Thessalonica, his preaching was in the midst of much opposition. He had to fight through this week after week. They saw the way that his ministry was growing, it angered them, and they stirred up, and they brought all kinds of opposition and false accusations. They stirred up a rabble, a crowd, a mob, stoking what isn't really true, but making it, giving it this appearance of, of legitimacy. As many people as they could round up, and they brought Paul before the authorities and tried to smear his name. But they also, these Thessalonians at least, they knew all this. They remembered all this, but they also saw Paul's response. 
they were able to observe his life, that in the midst of all this opposition, he didn't shrink back. He didn't run away. He wasn't deterred. He didn't mute the message. In fact, God gave him boldness. We had boldness in our God, he says. He was the source of our boldness. Paul remembered those times. He remembered that in his own flesh, he probably wanted to run away out of all the pain that he was suffering through all of that. It's never a a fun thing to go through. But he remembers how God strengthened him day by day. And back in chapter 1, we talked about this again in verse 5, how Paul said that this conviction that was given to him in the midst of all of this was actually a sign of God's desire to work within them. He says, it's a sign of your election. The fact that we didn't run away because he probably was thinking we wanted to. And the fact that God gave us the boldness to press through all that was an evidence that He wanted a church there in Thessalonica. That you were elect. He reminds them of this. He reminds them of His courage and His boldness that came from God. Courage that was evident in the midst of the opposition. And it proved the genuineness and the sincerity of His ministry. It proved it. Because preaching always has its challenges, but it's a lot easier in an environment where no one is, is ridiculing you, a lot easier where no one is challenging you, no one is opposing you. But when you get into an environment of opposition, Paul knew the difficulty. He knew that while he was preaching outside the doors, People were stirring up trouble, stirring up rumors. He said it was in the midst of this opposition. I wasn't unaware of it, he says. It didn't just spring on me at the last minute. I knew in the midst of much opposition. So it had to be felt. It had to be um, intense so that the Thessalonians could remember this, could identify with this. Luke tells us it started in the third week, Jews stirring up rumors, and it continued to build over the next couple of months until it finally exploded into this riot. And yet Paul kept on preaching. Now this is one of the qualities of a genuine shepherd. Paul begins here because this is so important in the life of a genuine shepherd. A genuine shepherd is different than, as Jesus says, a hired hand. A hired hand runs away in the midst of trouble. But a shepherd stands his ground and faces whatever opposition, whatever danger might come, whatever wolves may come, he stands his ground. He doesn't give in to the temptation to run. He doesn't give in to the temptation to compromise. He doesn't give in to the temptation to accommodate his message or his gospel to the error or the sin that is all around him. He doesn't retreat physically, he doesn't retreat spiritually, emotionally. He remains fixed, steadfast in the face of opposition. And Paul says all of this came from our God. We had a boldness from our God. This wasn't personal. This wasn't even personality. This was something that was given to him from God. In fact... If you have your Bibles, flip over to Joshua chapter 1, a well-known 
passage which I think gives us some insight into when Paul says that his boldness came from God, it makes me think of this passage in Joshua chapter 1 that we all memorized at some point when we were young that talks about this kind of courage, this kind of strength in the midst of adversity. Because God has given a message to Joshua here and he's telling him how to have this kind of courage and how to have this kind of boldness. And he tells him at least three times in these few verses, be strong and courageous. And he gives him a number of reasons why. It says in verse 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous. Being careful to do according to all the law that, the Moses, that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. That you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you'll have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Over and over again, he's telling them, be strong, be courageous. In verse 6, he tells them that because he says, I'm going to give you this land. In other words, I have a plan. And you need to understand that. You need to understand that there's something that's at work that is so much bigger than you and really so much bigger than even this generation. There's so many, so many things that are bigger than your particular ministry and even bigger than the particular people that you're leading. Because I have a plan that goes back before your time and even before the time of Moses that goes all the way back to the patriarchs to give to this people a land. I promised it to your fathers and I always accomplish my purposes. This is where courage comes from partly is just understanding that God is at work providentially, sovereignly, working out His plan. And for those of us in the time of the church, we know that He is working it out through the church, that His church has been established and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so all we need to do is keep step with the plan. And it brings courage. It brings about strength. It brings about fortitude. He reminds him, be strong and courageous. 
because I'm doing this. Secondly, in verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all according to the law of Moses that my servant commanded, the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to the right hand or the left that you might have good success. And then he tells them, that the book of the law should not depart from you, but you should meditate on it day and night, being careful to do all that is written in it. And you'll have good success. So he's just reminding him of, of where your wisdom needs to come from, where your understanding needs to come from. You need to trust in the Lord with, with all of your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. You need to understand that if you're going to have success, you must die to your own opinions and your own your own uh, ambitions even. You just need to meditate and grow deep in the wisdom of the Word of God. Let the convictions of its truthfulness and its precepts come, uh, become the core of who you are so that you're meditating on it, growing deep in the wisdom that's in it, meditating on its implications, knowing how it works out in the practical applications of life and all of that builds your courage it builds your courage and then finally in verse 9 have i not commanded you be strong and courageous do not be frightened do not be dismayed for the lord your god is with you so you're courageous because you understand the presence of god he won't leave you or He won't forsake you. In fact, He said that back in verse 5. Just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. No matter how fierce the battle, no matter how many setbacks you may have in defeat, He promised Joshua His presence. He would never forsake him. Joshua had been there with Moses through the wilderness. He remembered that they set out on a journey. And it was a journey that Moses had told them would take a few months. It took 40 years. Safe to say there were some setbacks. There were some lost battles in the hearts of the people. But Moses knew that God never forsook him, even in those 40 years. And so God is reminding Joshua, I was with Moses, I'll be with you no matter what the opposition, no matter what the obstacles, no matter what the setbacks, never lose your courage. Never lose your courage. If you understand the plan of God, if you meditate on the precepts of God and you understand the presence of God, you will have it. You'll have the strength to stay the course. Now, this is the testimony back over in Thessalonians chapter 2. This is the testimony of Paul and his fellow missionaries. They stayed the course. They remained steadfast, courageous in the face of opposition when it came against them. And Paul reminds the Thessalonians of that because it validated who he was as a shepherd. Now, there's a second quality that Paul highlights here and he reminds them about in his own ministry. And it was his motives. They were God-centered and they were God-focused. He had God-centered and God-focused motives. And this is the second quality that reflects the life of a true, genuine shepherd. His motivation comes out of a heart committed to pleasing God above all else. He says there in verse 3, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak, 
not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. So he just tells them that this is where his, his, his motives came from. This is where his appeal came from. This is where his exhortation came from. He was exhorting them. That's the way it's uh, translated in, in some versions. Here in the ESV, it's appeal. He says, but you know where that came from. Our, our exhortation to you to walk in godliness, to please God, to walk in a manner worthy of God. That's what he says down in verse 12. We were appealing to you and charging you to walk in a manner worthy of God. He says all of that didn't come from impure motives. It's not why I was saying those things. It doesn't come from, from false pretenses. And he lists three of them here. First of all, error. The word is plane. It basically, we get our word planet from it because it talks about something that sort of travels around or wanders around. And Paul's saying, look, we weren't just sort of wandering off the pathway of truth. We weren't self-deluded and self-deceived sincere but sort of meandering down the road and misleading you along the way. Secondly, our exhortations were not full of impurity. That is, this wasn't about our own personal gain. The word is often associated with sexual immorality, but probably here it's just more general. Uh, Ambition, greed, power. Paul's enemies certainly were that way. But he wasn't driven by this personal attainment, personal success, personal comfort. None of this was about me. And then thirdly, he says, it wasn't about any attempt to deceive. It wasn't innocent error wandering off the pathway and it wasn't intentional deception trying to take advantage of you by some trick or some clever scheme. He understands that these are all the kinds of accusations that are being made against him. He understands that this is what people have been saying about him ever since he left town. That he was in it for himself. That he was just about personal gain and personal power and artful deception. He was being accused of being underhanded and peddling error. So it makes sense that in verse 4... Paul says, look, none of this came from any of those things, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Look, these guys think that we are deceivers. They think that we're whatever. You know, they have all these things. But you know what? It doesn't matter to me. Because I have been approved, he says, by God. I have been entrusted with the gospel by God. And consequently, we're not trying to please them. We're not trying to please you. We're not trying to please any man. We are trying to please God who tests our hearts. Our ministry is driven by that. It's not driven by, by their approval. It is driven by the praise of God who tests our heart. That's their true motivation. It had been put to the test. And Paul had a deep sense down in his heart that he had been entrusted with this gospel and he would be examined. That's what drove him. He was compelled, regardless of the response of the people, regardless of whether or not they were accepting or not accepting. And all of that just eliminates the whole idea of scheming or impurity or false pretenses. You don't need all that stuff if you're driven by this sense of stewardship before God. You don't need false pretenses. 
Because you are singularly focused on pleasing only one person, and that is God. And guess what? He knows our heart. That's what he says. I don't need all that trickery. I don't need all that facade. God is the one that I'm concerned about, and he is concerned about my heart. So I'm concerned about my heart. It's the implication. I'm sure this is kind of an unsatisfactory explanation for Paul's opponents who would say, oh, there he goes again, just deceiving, just talking up himself. But it didn't matter because regardless of what they thought or regardless of what the Thessalonians thought or anyone thought, Paul was going to keep on preaching. Remember the words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4? He says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul says, I don't really care what they say about me. I don't really care what you say about me. I don't even have any judgment about myself. It only matters what the Lord says. And it's that call on my life that compels me to keep speaking. Now, this is the exact opposite of Paul's opponents. They claimed, just like Paul did, to be serving God. But in fact, they were absorbed with the praise of men. This is what Luke tells us, Luke 17, that that it was jealousy which stirred them up. They were stirred up against Paul because their followers were shifting, they perceived, loyalty from their synagogue over to the church. Or their followers were shifting, they thought, loyalty from them over to Paul. Although Paul was not demanding any person's individual loyalty, that was their perception. And so it was jealousy that caused them to stir up all these rumors. And so what did they do? They lashed out. They lashed out. They came in and began to stir up all of this stuff because this is what pseudo-leaders do. They're all about human followers. They're all about human evaluation. They're all about human praise. And that is apparently what drove everything that they said and everything that they did. They wanted to be honored. They wanted to be esteemed. They wanted to appear to, to have a certain level of success and standing. And when they felt like that was being challenged... It provoked them. Paul says, that wasn't us. That wasn't our motive. We weren't driven by these kinds of deceptive things. We weren't driven by these kinds of impure things. In fact, you'll say later on, we had a title, Apostles of Christ. We didn't even demand any kind of recognition as that. His evaluation here, like other places, is this. I am simply a slave. My aim is to please God. And I will aim at that, and I will leave the results in His 
hands. If he wants to honor my efforts with success, I'll be content. If he doesn't want to honor my efforts with success, I'll be content. I don't make any demands of God. I don't try to strike some sort of deal, some sort of bargain. I don't say, God, if you will provide this, then I'll serve you in this way. God, if you'll do this, then I'll open my lips and speak. God, if you'll do this, then somehow I'll continue on what I'm doing. But if you don't do this, I'm out of here. He didn't do that. My aim is simply to please Him. And I'll leave the results to Him. It's unfortunate that it's such a difficult task to find these kinds of shepherds. For whatever reason, God doesn't give them to us in abundance. But when you find one, you'll know it. When you watch their lives, you'll see it. Courage, the right kind of motives, It'll be evident. You'll recognize it. And there's more. But I'll have to wait for next time. When we get together. Let's stand together. While you're standing, I want to just appeal to you if you're here today and you have heard maybe other charlatans, other preachers. All you've known in the church is hypocrisy duplicitous people, lives that you couldn't follow because what you heard on a Sunday was so different than what you saw during the week. That's been your experience. Let me tell you that the power of God resides in the life of true shepherds, true preachers, true churches that preach a message that their lives stand behind. And we just want to invite you, if you're here today, every one of us, you can look around, every one of us would say the same thing. Examine our lives. Look at us. See if you see the change in our life, the power of God. Because we once were like you. We were sinners. Lost and alienated from God. Confused and broken. But God's power penetrated our hearts. Took hold of our lives. And He took us who were once dead in trespasses and sins and He gave us life in Christ. He can do that with you today. We encourage you. Open your heart and mind to the gospel. Listen as God calls you to repentance and faith. Trust in Christ and He will forgive you of your sins. Father, we're grateful this morning for this precious gospel that's been entrusted to us. We're so thankful for the shepherds and leaders that you have surrounded us with, men whose lives we can not only uh, see but emulate and whose message is validated by how they live. Lord, we pray that you would raise up even more among us for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.